Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. It has been one of the hottest stocks this year, Weight Watchers. Yes, Weight Watchers Chief Executive Mindy Grossman joins us here in our 1130 studio. Mindy, thank you very much for being here. Oh, great to be here. You, you know, before we get into the details of the company and and, and your role in it, I want to just uh, get your thoughts on something because I was looking at a couple of the recent press releases and it does most of the, the recent stuff does not say how to lose weight. It's not about weight loss. It is about healthy lifestyles. And I want to mention one particularly, maybe get your thoughts on this, because you just recently did a deal and it's called WW Healthy Kitchen. And I wonder if you could use that as an example of how the whole conversation about health and wellness and weight loss is changing in the United States. Absolutely, Pim. When we announced our new purpose and vision of we inspire healthy habits for real life, for people, for families, for communities, the world, for everyone, that's really about a holistic approach to what you put in your body, how you move your body, and how you think. And as part of doing that, we made some real decisions about not just what we would do, but what we wouldn't do. So we announced we're getting out of any products that have ever had our name on it, that have anything artificial or preservative, and that we really wanted to own the healthy kitchen in food, in products, in content, in recipes, and in chefs. So we recently announced a partnership with Fresh Realm for fresh quick prep meals that will be in grocery. We also announced a partnership with Gibson for a whole line of products we just launched at the Chicago Houseware Show um, to help you cook healthier with your family in the kitchen and not just in your kitchen. And we announced our first chef ambassador um, to be able to reflect and make all these healthy recipes. So Chef Eric Greenspan, interestingly enough, was known as the king of comfort cooking. Um, and we were able to share his recipes of everything from shrimp and grits for four points. But the most important thing is to give people the tools and to give them the education and inspiration to lead healthier lives. And we were talking a little earlier that we know that when someone in the family does Weight Watchers, the whole family actually 
has a benefit and gets healthier because everything we do fits into your life. There's nothing you can't eat. It's just learning the habits that's going to help you. So anything we can give people, provide people to do that. And then the last, and why it was so important, we also know that one of the most valuable things for our members, consumers, is time. So if we could give them the ability to have a great meal that they can prepare in under 15 minutes that is going to give them the points, going to fit into their life, and they could do it for one, they could do it for two, they could do it for four. I, this just makes me think how much fads change because I think of 1980s, 1990s, ultra slim fast shakes uh, and how that was the popular uh, treatment. Give me a bar I can eat and make me lose weight. Now it's about wholeness and wellness and purity and, and, and these other things. I'm just wondering how concerned you are. I mean, yes, your shares have been on a run up more than 50% so far this year. How concerned are you that you're getting into a territory that competes directly with Amazon, with Blue Apron, with some of these other brands. Yeah. We have to remember, this is not our only business. This is a product extension that we think will not only service our existing members, but others as well, number one. Number two, just because we're going to enhance our offerings to include other things, we will undeniably continue to be the number one authority globally on healthy weight loss. Um, and it's still very much an acute need for people around the world. I always say everybody's talking about health and wellness, um, the wellness economy. Nobody wants to uh, be on a diet, but nobody's getting healthier and we have a crisis in obesity. So we know that weight loss is still going to be an important component for us. Um, and we have the science behind it, our chief scientific officer, academic advisory board. Um, that is really an important element. And science informs everything we do. And that undeniably is a real differentiation factor. Tell people how did Weight Watchers begin, because that may also be a little bit of an eye-opener, because it wasn't about selling products at the beginning. Yeah, it's really interesting. The two core tenets of Weight Watchers from the very beginning was what you put in your body, the food, and more importantly, it was about community, which still inherently is the core of what we do. It was Jean Neidich starting in her home and bringing people together to inspire each other. And today, community is more important than ever. So that whether that's our digital community within our app called Connect, um, or whether it's our physical uh, meetings, we have uh, just in the United States alone, 15,000 meetings a week, globally 30,000 meetings a week. Um, and our three and a half million members are also all engaged in the app. And what we have found today when we talk to consumers, inspiration is yeah. as important, if not more important than education. So what's the main obstacle? You said people are getting less healthy, not more. Why? So I'm asked all the time who our competition is, and I said our greatest competition is people thinking they can get healthy themselves. Um, and they need a partner, and they need someone to give them the tools and the education and the support along the way. Only 5% of people use a commercial weight loss program. Yeah, but no, like very few did back in the 50s. But what, what's happening? So... I think that there's a lot happening. I think people lead very frenetic lives. They're not necessarily preparing, understanding what they need to do to be healthier. Um, how can they support their family? And and that's why, you know, I think globally people need a partner in health, and that's what we're trying to do. 
Let's just talk a little bit about some of the numbers because I know you've got a target by 2020. You want to do two billion, I believe. Yes. Right. Uh, how important is it to have Oprah Winfrey behind you in order to reach that goal? Look, Oprah has been a fantastic board member, and she's been an incredible partner to me since I've been at the company. Um, and she's very engaged, and that's terrific. But what is really important is that all the fundamentals of the business continue to be enhanced. If you look at our member growth, if you look at our retention, Pim, it's the highest levels it's ever been. So the more we can give our customers what they want, our members what they want, not just in terms of our program, but in terms of personalizing the journey for them, giving them more tools and content, um, giving them products. And what we've said, to reach that number, we want to have at least 5 million members in our program, touch another 5 million, because it's the ripple effect that's really going to get us there. Mindy Grossman, thank you so much for being with us. Mindy Grossman, thank Chief you. Executive Officer of Weight Washers based in New York. Facebook started the day on a soft foot. That foot has only gotten softer here to talk about what exactly is driving the losses that are now nearly 7% on these shares is our own Paul Sweeney, who is head of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence and joins us here in our 1130 studios. So, Paul, what's the narrative driving this at this point? Because earlier today, it was just fear of ambiguous regulation, but these are pretty big losses. Yeah, this is a, this is impacting the tech sector across the board, and I think the reason we're seeing it, obviously, the, the Facebook news brings it to the forefront, and what it brings to the forefront is, I think, a long-held, uh, long-term risk or concern that even the bullish tech investors have in the back of their minds that um, regulatory risk is something that the industry really needs to think about as it con continues to consolidate uh, and get bigger on a glo global scale. So I'm really talking about the names, the Fang names, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Googles, the Netflixes, as they become you know even larger in terms of market cap and global reach, uh, I think even the most bullish investors would say, you know, that is inviting uh, more regulatory scrutiny around the world. Uh, we already see the regulatory uh, oversight, um, I think, coming to the fore a little bit more in Europe. Um, but now I think this is bringing a little bit closer to home with the Facebook news. Well, but aren't there already oversights in terms of the kinds of content that can be deemed criminal or illegal? There are, and uh, <clears throat> and I think Facebook would tell you that they have pretty good controls, as would a Google and uh, a Netflix and anybody to whom you entrust a lot of personal in information. Um, but I think what we're finding out here from some of the Facebook news is it's not necessarily uh, the Facebook per se, but it's uh, and what they do with your information is but what other users might do with that information to the extent they get access to it. So in the case of Facebook here, it's really a question of Facebook, do you really know what information do you you have? Do you really know who has access to that information? But that's an issue of internal control. Yes. And if you deem that that information has been stolen, that's a criminal act. And if you can find the person or persons or organization, you can actually go after them. So it would, would can it be in the same category as a data breach from Equifax or having your personal information stolen, let's say, from a healthcare provider. Yep, absolutely. It's the. Uh, I think it's very, very similar. Um, and I think what's interesting about the, and why I think the Facebook is getting such big news today, because it's it's personal information. Uh, it's information that you're freely sharing with other people, uh, but you choose to who 
to whom you're sharing that information. And I think the, the issue here is consumers aren't really sure about what's happening to their information. And But I think they always consumers always felt like uh, Facebook did. Facebook understands uh, where the information is, what safeguards are on it, who can get access to it. Uh, but now it appears that Facebook maybe doesn't have the level of control over the information that maybe we, we thought. Um, this is a breach that happened a couple of years ago. Um, so again, it just kind of brings to the forefront uh, some of the issues about personal data, privacy issues, which are uh, very important around the world, but most notably in Europe, uh, the regulators are most aggressive there. Uh, so again, that you know, it, nothing can stop these stocks. It seems like they continue to put up extraordinary financial results, um, and this might just be a pullback, a short-term pullback. We've seen this before, uh, but again, I think the most bullish investors would even tell you in the back of their minds their biggest long-term risk that they see in some of these big tech stories is regulatory risk, and and here's just the the latest example of that. So I want to pick up on that. This could just be a buying opportunity in the long run. And uh, certainly these shares have sloughed off or shrugged off uh, last the last like what 10 uh, such scares that we've gotten of, of this manner. But what's the what's what's the one thing, the event, the development that you're looking for that would show you that we really are at an inflection point. It's if it's if uh, I think Congress gets involved here and if you know if Congress or um, you know brings Mark Zuckerberg to Washington DC to to get in front of some committee here and uh, So that's a turning point. Mark Zuckerberg testifies in Congress inflection point. It is. Yes, it would be and uh, his performance in front of Congress would also be, you know, very closely watched because to date the big tech companies have generally avoided that level of scrutiny here in in the U.S. Um, for good reason because the tech industry has been a you know a, a bellwether industry for this country and a tremendous creator of jobs and technologies and and all the great stuff um, and so they've generally avoided a lot of the regulatory um, issues that some other industries have had to deal with uh, but that may be changing a little bit on the margin again I think what's happening here what's different here from say the Googles or even the Microsofts of 20, 20 years ago is that this is personal information of individuals um, that, you know, that type of information wasn't necessarily shared freely or available freely uh, with other technologies. But that's what's a little bit different here with the social media companies. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing here today in the market. Well, is it just that the social media companies now become just like, as I said, Equifax, Heartland Payment Systems, uh, Yahoo, eBay, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, TJX, Uber. I mean, all these companies have had data breaches. The U.S. Office of Personnel Management, I believe they were talking about something like personal information. About 22 million current and former federal employees was hacked. Yeah, and I think uh, it, it very much is, and it's it's. You're gonna. I think you're going to see the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world, uh, you know, be more uh, public about the investments they're making in securing data. Um, but I think what's what's interesting here and what's I think spooking some people is that you think about some of the information that people put into their social networks. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's you you know one could argue maybe it's not as important as a, your social security number. Uh, it can be uh, you know very uh, it could be some sensitive in, in information. I think that's kind of what some people are concerned about. Just quickly, I would be remiss if we didn't turn our attention to Apple because uh, there was a Bloomberg news story talking about how they're planning to develop their own display screens in direct competition uh, with Samsung, replacing the ones that they had used previously from them. Uh, is this important to you because it seems to build on the impression that Apple is trying to bring 
bring as many things in-house as they can. Yeah, it is. It's um, you know, I spoke to Anand Srinivasan, who covers technology for, for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he said, yeah, this is just another example of, of Apple you know, looking to bring certain critical aspects of their manufacturing capabilities and their technology uh, technology capabilities in-house. Um, you know, they are such a big buyer of so many of these uh, components um, that I think they this is you know part of the diversification of, of kind of their supply chain a little bit. But it's and also because of technical issue. Uh, this is the, the, uh, oh, according yes. oh, to the yeah. story, this is about something called a micro LED technology, right. which is different than the uh, OLED uh, exactly. technology, it, and it's it's more challenging to produce. It is, and and. Uh, I think the real question will be for Apple over the next couple of years as they continue to develop this technology, do they license the manufacturing of this technology out to an existing manufacturer or do they keep it in-house? Uh, that, that'll be the real decision point for them and to the extent uh, that if they view it as very critical to their supply chain, they may at least initially keep it in-house. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us, uh, as always. Uh, Paul Sweeney is our U.S. Director of Research and our Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, giving us an update on Facebook. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. A U.S. Circuit Court has struck down the Labor Department's fiduciary rule dealing a blow to the retirement savings regulation that has been in partial effect since last June. Here to tell us more about this is Elliot Weisbluth. He is the founder and the chief executive of Hightower Advisors. They help to manage about $50 billion of customer assets. They're based in Chicago. Elliot, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, just a quick review. The Labor Department has not responded to a request for comment about this and this was a split decision in the first in the fifth circuit court and it talks about how this rule requiring uh, managers of pension fund money to be fiduciaries the rule they said is unreasonable now that that may be legally unreasonable but you have your your own thoughts about whether the rule itself is uh worthwhile for investors tell us your perspective the, the broader the broader context here is why we're even having a discussion about whether or not the client's interest should be first or not. And the fact that there's a discussion that's been going on, frankly, for years, uh, you know, is just uh, an example of how you can have different commercial influences from Wall Street and big banks. You can have a relatively ineffective regulatory judicial system that allows some of those interests to get momentum and obstruct a very simple concept that there should be a single standard uniform duty that when an individual interacts with a financial advisor, the same way you interact with an accountant or you interact with a doctor, you have a reasonable expectation that that service provider is putting your interests first. And any confusion or discussion around that uh, should suggest that somebody else 
in the mix has an interest, and that's a commercial interest, that's, that's going to come in front of the client's interest. And we would find that to be very upsetting if this was a medical discussion. You know, if you, were, if you and I were talking about a ruling that said a doctor, you know, had to follow the Hippocratic Oath, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, but on Fridays, they could represent the drug companies and put, put their own economic interest first and not the patient's interest first. We, right. wouldn't, we wouldn't have an argument, but well, in our industry, we're having that argument. Elliot, just to push back a little, one thing that financial advisors have argued is that they are unable to sometimes give the advice that they think is best to clients under the new rule uh, because there is something more complicated about it, or it might be a higher fee type of offering, but you know it might be lucrative down the line. But they don't want to be even uh, potentially seen as having a whiff of a conflict of interest. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think I think that's a little bit of a of a disingenuous argument. I, I think that if you have a service provider whose job it is to put the client's interest first, <clears throat> and you're getting compensated at a, as a service provider, and you're doing the best job that you can, and you're educated, and you're trained, and you're focused on what you believe is in your client's best interest. That's a duty that a thoughtful service provider should take on. It's no different than when an accountant reads the new rules for, for an IRS ruling or interprets how to handle your taxes or the way a, a medical professional handles the complexity around giving medical advice. In, in the business of giving advice, you have to shoulder the responsibility of thinking about how does your advice impact the client. And in the areas of money and finance, there's a high degree of speculation because obviously the markets and the, and the way you interact with money can be highly speculative, but that shouldn't undermine the responsibility that the service provider has to put the client first, not the service provider's own economic interest. And that's, I think, where this argument gets a little bit muddled is if you're not putting the client's interests first, then whose interests are first? And if it's your own interest or it's your employer's interest because of conflicts of interest, then we're getting to the root of the matter, which is not allowing the client to come first, instead allowing a commercial interest of the business to come first. And that's, that's what we started Hightower in 2007 under the very simple premise that the client's interest should come first, period. And there shouldn't be an argument about it. And and Elliot, just to be even perhaps clear about this, it is not necessarily about whether a specific investment is more or less expensive than another investment. Although that could be part of it, but it, it it's it's just being upfront about what you think is in the client's best interest. Here's what, how much I may or may not make because I'm recommending it or not recommending it, and this is how I get compensated. Is that accurate? That's exactly right, Tim. So if the, if the client is bearing the cost of the investment, which in a fiduciary relationship, whether it's a very modestly priced uh, a product like an ETF or a product that may have higher fees like a hedge fund, the, the cost of that investment in a fiduciary relationship is borne by the client and yeah. the financial advisor gives advice around whether or not yeah. the, 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 the appropriateness of that product makes sense. But yeah. the financial advisor is not getting compensated as part of the underlying cost of the product 
unless there's a conflict of interest. And that's that's where, where people are not are not having candid and open conversations. Elliot Weisbluth, thank you so much for joining us, founder and chief executive officer of Hightower Advisors, overseeing about $50 billion from Chicago. After spending a few months on a spaceship circling around the Earth and uh, perhaps heading toward Mars, Suzanne Barton joins us here in our 1130 studios. She's a commodity reporter for Bloomberg News, and she just wrote a story that feels like it is straight out of Star Trek. And perhaps she hasn't really been traveling around the world in a spaceship, uh, but this story sort of seems like you have. Suzanne, uh, lay it out. Why are people looking to mine asteroids. Well, hi, Lisa. Are you? Um, well, there, everyone knows about you know Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos and, and Branson, and they're spending tons of money on on space travel. But there is another emerging space industry, and people actually think that this will allow them to make tons of money. And it's it's mining asteroids in space. It's mining asteroids for for two things. One, water. Um, which is very valuable when you're in space because it, it helps to make rocket fuel. And the other reason is for metals, metals that we mine here on Earth. Um, it, some people think that at some point we're going to run low on iron or nickel or cobalt at some point in the future. And so the question is, well, where do we get the next stock of these metals? And people think we can find them on asteroids. And if they're able, this niche industry, if they're able to do this, then they believe that it's going to make them tons of money. What is the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft and how does this figure into the story? Well, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, it's um, it's 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 a mission that's being overseen by by NASA, and it's really going up to this asteroid called Bennu, and it's it's one of the first that's actually first U.S. mission that's actually going to go there. Um, they're going to test four samples of of water and potentially metal on on this uh, on this asteroid, and the the spacecraft is actually going to bring this sample back to Earth in about 2023. So um, in a couple of months, in a few months, it'll start taking pictures of the asteroid because it'll be moving closer to it. And then it'll arrive um, uh, sometime uh, later this year and going into next year. So logistically, I'm just trying to wrap my head around the complexity of mining a moving, hurtling (laughs) rock and who knows what else object through space. Mm -hmm. I mean, how does that happen? How do they do it? Well, they take the spacecraft. Well, the spacecraft goes to the asteroid and it extends these long arms. (laughs) 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 And it it sort of, it takes literally seconds, just a few seconds to get tons of, of the different samples of materials from the asteroid. Then it puts it in a capsule. It sort of locks it up. And then in a couple of years, it'll bring it back to Earth. And scientists will take a look at it and, and study it to see what's really on that asteroid. Um, they do think, you know, a lot of these asteroids have metal, at least. Yeah. Um, uh, iron, at least iron. And, and they certainly have water. 
So they'll be doing more tests to figure out where they go from there. Now, the effort is, uh, as you mentioned, this this effort is going to return some of the samples to Earth. Mm -hmm. But uh, I thought it was interesting that a lot of the focus is on using these raw materials but keeping them in space. And that would dovetail with missions to Mars and also uh, keeping uh, humans in long, uh, long duration right. space flight. Exactly. So it's it's really an emerging industry, and people, uh, these companies will actually at some point be manufacturing um, different work tools, um, probably uh, satellite parts and antennas in in space. So they really, at some point, will not have to come to Earth to make these uh, antennas. They will be able to make them up there. there. There's a company there now that has sort of what's called a 3D printer that actually prints the different parts of, of, of satellites, of, of um, antennas so for use there in, in space. Who's financing this, since it seems like the returns won't be felt for... Uh or realized, rather, for perhaps, I don't know, what, 20 years? Right. Um, so it's a lot of private equity money. Um, there's one company called Planetary Resources. There's another called Deep Space Industries. And they do have um, financing from uh, Branson and even that there's a tiny nation in, in Europe which wants to be the, the space hub of Europe called Luxembourg. And they've put tons of money in, into doing this. So you won't find the typical institutional investor chasing down these companies. Although maybe uh, through a private equity firm. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe that. Um, so so that's where primarily the, the money is coming from. The money's also coming from Tencent, the, the, or rather that's the founder, company. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that Chinese billionaire, yes, he certainly has been putting some effort and some money into this. And uh, do we know whether this is a currently uh, going to be, lo- who is the launch uh, facility for this? In other words, you got to send these things into space. Is this going to be SpaceX or uh, do we know whether it's going to be United Launch uh, Alliance? Um, SpaceX uh, primarily, well, people, uh, th- this little uh, emerging space industry, they expect that SpaceX will actually be very, very helpful in, in creating this new ecosystem in space because they will be carrying cargo and human beings to space and you know they do expect that they'll be doing it more frequently as the years go by thanks very much Uh, suzanne barton our commodities reporter for uh bloomberg news fascinating story and interesting development when it comes to uh mining you'll be able to uh mine things in space and they might even stay there well done Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.